Hi there, and welcome to the Plus One podcast. Uh, my name's Joe Houghton, and today I'm thrilled to welcome um, a colleague of mine from University College Dublin, the Smurfit Graduate School of Business, um, Dr. Jacob Eisenberg. Jacob was on my very first draft list when I, when I started the Plus One project. Uh, he has a doctorate in psychology from Colorado State. He speaks English, Russian and Hebrew, although I'm hoping he's going to speak English today because my Russian and Hebrew are non-existent. Jacob is a deep thinker with a serious sense of fun. He teaches at UCD. He does some coaching and he's an associate professor at the Smurfit School of Business. I send out a pre-interview questionnaire and I was not surprised to find that Jacob had ignored most of my questions in that in that pre-interview questionnaire. So I'm not sure where today is going to go. We, we probably won't have the, stru the structure that we, we might have on some of the other um, chats, but it's going to be interesting either way. So, so welcome to the podcast, Jacob. Hello, Joe. Guilty as charged. I I like that uh, that intro. I really like that. Yeah. Um, I, I I got a bit of a, a a reaction I noticed internally when you said serious. That you you mentioned the word serious. Uh, but um, yeah, seriously on something. But that, then it got rebalanced. Uh, so it's just interesting for me how. Um, I'm, I'm reacting to the word serious. And um, I think I'm, Alan Watts really put it, uh, Alan Watts, um, who has been a very a completely out of bounds and framework, uh, thinker, philosopher, integrating Eastern philosophy in, in uh, the 60s and uh, early 70s into kind of Western um western public and um i he's absolutely brilliant chap and um he said we are using the word serious often wrongly when we should or when we mean earnest ah. and that really set it right because you know uh, so for me i i realized why i had that resistance to serious because it's like you know in in church you're serious in funerals. You're serious, and it has. There are places where we should be serious. It has a weight to it, it but it wasn't the weight I wanted in most of my contacts, right? But then it's an earnest, which had the intensity, and it's like, you know, seriously playing football. Well, what are you playing like, you know, with a serious? No, you're playing it earnestly. You're fully in. Um, so that that just kind of. Uh, something to share well, that's that's an interesting thing to pick up straight straight from the get-go isn't it that the the, the 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 serious and earnest thing because because i suppose as, as i've got to know you a little bit better over the last few years i i i, I think of you as somebody who is earnest who 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 has a care about what they do and what they say and and how they do and say what you know what you do uh, yeah that that's that that's really interesting I, I i was i was looking up one of your talks on your um your linkedin profile um yesterday and i think you mentioned um in in that talk that enjoyment and challenge are both okay it's kind of like you seem happy with discomfort 
talk talk to that because that seems to be a thing something that informs you doesn't it this this kind of thing about being uncomfortable and embracing you are good you are good um that is i think something that is core i i, I will change a little bit I, I i don't think i'm enjoying discomfort i'm enjoying challenges and there has been an evolution in me because I, I think it's part of my Soviet-Israeli upbringing that, you know, like good medicine should be bitter. And, you, you know, when they started with the iodine that didn't sting, it's like, is it really working? And so uh, those two cultural uh, influences me, they, you know, they, they made me call not enjoy but be able to be resilient with this comfort and challenge but that has changed over the years and i'm actually not at my peak of looking for challenges okay i'm much more discerning now than i was 10 years ago and and i and that's part of it was learning to say no to some some challenges so that that has kind of my wisening um up but there is something in me that wishes for stretch, wishes for challenge. So I enjoy when I'm able not to be bothered by discomfort, when it doesn't kill my energy, when, um, you know, and actually uh, something completely not to do with teaching, but, but very to do with Ireland and very to do with me getting to know Ireland. And it's uh, hiking, and I've I've always liked to hike, but I wouldn't have hiked in pouring rain until a few years ago, because you know why do it? It's suffering, it's miserable. And then through this group that was, the motto was: there is no such thing bad weather. There is only bad clothes. Yeah. And I got into high, you know, Saturday morning, getting up earlier than I would have naturally got up after a work week and seeing that it's going to rain and still going out driving and uh, hiking and it's not like i preferred the miserable weather i did not but i enjoyed the fact that i could find enjoyment within this comfort yeah and i, I mean i suppose as a as a photographer myself kind of going out and doing landscape photography i mean if i get up and it's raining or it's going to rain that doesn't stop me going out because there's a different experience to have to be had isn't there on a rainy day or on a misty day or on a wet day than there is on a dry day um and embracing those differences can be can be very fulfilling um like you say if you've got the right gear it's it's not much fun being out in the rain if you're cold and miserable but yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah okay so you mentioned russia and is israel and you were you got your doctorate in the USA, and now you're in Ireland. So so you're a bit of a rolling stone. You you seem to have kind of been everywhere. <laughs> does, I prefer. How does that I, contribute yeah. to Jacob Eisenberg in 2021? <laughs> I I prefer the very non politically correct uh, term cultural gypsy. Um, <laughs> yeah. But. Um, yeah. So I said Soviet, by the way. I didn't say Russia. Okay. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Although, although uh, my first culture and first language, where I speak really badly now, is Russian. 
Um, but you know, my dad is from Belarus. My mother is from Latvia. I was born in Latvia, but I don't really have Latvian culture. So it was Soviet upbringing with a Russian um, culture, and especially for my dad, who was really passionate about Russian and, culture. And it's, I mean, I feel so ignorant asking this question, but there's obviously a difference there between Soviet and Russian. Well, Soviet. And- for me, Soviet, I mean, I, I can't yeah. think of those two as, as the same thing. So, so explain. What 99.9% of the people do. And, and I sometimes in, interchange. So Russia goes much deeper and back historically than Soviet. Okay. So Soviet is when the communist regime started, USSR. Uh, so the Soviet Union and Russia was the dominant. So the Soviet Union included, I, I can't remember numbers, but more than 30 republics from Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and Deep Asia and Mongolia to uh, Ukraine and Moldova and Russia uh, and then the Baltic states, Latvia, Estonia, uh, Lithuania uh, in the European. And so the, the Soviet would be kind of really trans-Russia, going beyond Russia. And there was, and of course, the Soviet experience was different in, in Kazakhstan than in Moscow, but mm. there was something permeating. So I, I would use differently the terms. And when I talk about uh, some authors of music, I, I would often say Russian because they were more Russian than Soviet. And then, but there's something about the Soviet toughness that is not just Russian, that it would, you know, it would apply to Ukraine. And and Latvia, etc. So and obviously Second World War. It was a Soviet, you know, it was a Soviet war, uh, not just Russian war, etc. Okay, right. So is there is there much of the, the the Latvian and Belarusian kind of heritage in in you? Do, do, are you informed by that, or or are not you really. Westernized, you know, more. Well. Yeah, I, I'm I'm really a mix because I was six and a half when uh, my parents um, moved from the Soviet Union to Israel, and um, so the kind of the floor is Russian culture, Russian Soviet culture. But and I think <clears throat> it's more in the last fifteen years that I've actually been acknowledging how it affected me because there was or, or more. 20-something years, because when we moved to Israel and there was very few immigrants at the time, the first priority was to adapt to the Israeli culture, which meant definitely putting all the Soviet clothes, both physically and metaphorically, deep in the closet. So definitely Israel was my most formative culture. At the same time, I left in 93, and um, I left for nine months on a scholarship exchange fellowship uh, to York University in Toronto, Canada. And uh, those nine months ended up being uh, three years. And uh, so it was exchange scholarship. I was going to go back to Israel and finish my master's there. But I, I think all, I responded to life and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, ended up uh, staying three years in Toronto, did my master's there and then um, I uh, went to Colorado for my PhD. Am I westernized? It depends which part of me you scratch, you know, yes. how hard you scratch. Yeah, yeah. 
And you studied for both those degrees psychology. All my degrees, oh, all, all my three degrees. In you don't teach psychology. Well, you may teach psychology now, but I, I, you, I, you're not teaching psychology as a subject head, yeah. are you? Um, so, yeah, that, yeah. That that was a big. That, that was one of the major dilemmas, and I had one of the most idiotically broad job searches at the end of my PhD. It is, uh, uh, I mean, oh, really idiotic. And I, I applied to more than 100 universities, my poor PhD committee. And, um, and partially it was because I was clueless and partially because I was open. So uh, I was open in, geographically yes. uh, to, you know, I wanted to stay in the US, but I also thought of Canada. Um, there were a couple of opportunities in Israel I explored, and then Europe, uh, and then Australia as well. So I, I was both open and curious about multiple places, and then I applied into three different areas, social psychology, um, industrial organizational psychology, and organizational behavior uh, in business schools. Um, so, uh, yeah, I honestly had really... I think I'm saying it for the first time publicly. Um, I had quite a stigma about business schools. It was, if you looked at me mid PhD, even towards the end of PhD, so I had what they call Jufro, really long hair, quite hippie looking. Yeah, look girls. At my head. Yeah, exactly. And just, but more like yours in length. So, yeah. <laughs> But more 3D, like all over. And, you know, I would go with torn jeans. And the idea of working in a business school was so foreign to me. But uh, bless my wise, open-minded um, supervisor, Keith, who knew me well enough. And he said, look, he was very non-conforming individual. So when he said, don't discount business school, I took it seriously. And what happened? What happened, I went to the Academy of Management conference. I was the only one there, actually, from yeah. my school. And there was a test, kind of. And it was scary. I was, you know, didn't know anyone. But I found that intellectually, I was burning like fire because the, the things that interested me then, research-wise, um, creativity and cross-cultural issues, they were really addressed more in the Academy of Management, mm -hmm. uh, then in the I.O. conference that I also went in Australian Organizational Psychology. So, and I met people who were actually, so I met management academics who, they didn't have ties and I could sit and talk to them. And, you know, my whole process of stereotyping started breaking down. And the next year I looked again and I applied for a few jobs and um, I had offers from different Universities, but then I ended up, yeah, saying I, I can see myself in a business school, yeah. Mm. And I mean, so so from the academic perspective, I mean, you you were on kind of a number of committees, mostly with the med division. Tell us about med. What what why why med and and what 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 drew you to med and and why are you why why did you spend so long there? <laughs> med about med. Um, so MED uh, is one, it's kind of mid-sized division within the Academy of Management. Uh, and it's um, about management, education, and development. 
So it's the division that is interested in scholarship, which includes both research and teaching, um, and then you know anything else like consulting, training, to do with the educational aspect of management. Okay. Um, it started fairly like a lot of my uh, things in life started serendipitously, um, or at least it became serendipitous. But it started incidentally. My first full-time job after finishing my PhD and before coming to Ireland, full, first full-time job as an academic, I don't know if you noticed that one, was in <laughs> Nicosia, Cyprus. Yeah. The Greek side. And it was a kind of like a Greek INSEAD type of um, private non-profit educational um, college. Okay. Very small, very good, all in English. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. I didn't learn any, almost any Greek there. And we taught just in the, so there was only master's degrees there. Okay. And during that period, Elena Antonakopoulou, who's from a Greek Cypriot background, and she was at the time the chair of the MED division. She's, she's a very uh, remarkable, uh, lovely lady as a person. And but uh, beyond that, a remarkable scholar in management learning with career that was mostly in the UK. And I, I don't know how we got connected. And she visited the institute and we had a chat. And she said, we're having, I, I'm, I'm instituting this kind of country liaisons. And we don't have anybody for Cyprus, which wasn't surprising. It's a small place. And would you be interested in being country liaison for men? I said, sure, yeah, I would, I'm kind of. That was, I think, 2002. And uh, so started there, then I really got into it. And then the more I was in the academy and in the MED, the MED division, I saw the convergence between my interests in management education and the division. So I, I did some role and then I said, well, I, I'm curious. Uh, it was mostly American at that stage, and part of my agenda within the Academy of Management Leadership was also to bring more foreign talent or international influence. And then, yeah, I signed up going for for the role and ended up being a six. Typically, it's five years uh, for various reasons. It ended up being a six-year cycle where the two most significant years were working on the program on the whole conference program and then uh, becoming the division chair. I remember we were talking a month or two back and you, you said that your, your focus perhaps in recent years has shifted perhaps away from academia and more into slightly, slightly different areas. Do you think that academia and, and med, for instance, has anything real to offer coal-faced teaching? and education, you know, at the sharp end with, with students in the, in front of you or, you know, kind of working with you. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure which of our conversations but, uh, <laughs> you, you, you're referring to, but I think two things have been happening. Mm. One is my shift within academia. Yes. So, so the balance of energy where I invested within academia has changed. And at the same time, uh, I find that I'm trying to have an impact on those areas where academia 
or where my academic background meets the external world. Right. There are, yeah, definitely. I mean, the is a very practice-oriented division. Right. Now, I will not say that every paper that is presented has a direct influence or potential to inform teaching, but there is a high conversion rate. So in terms of checking, examining the validity and impact of using various methods of teaching, mm. uh, such as digital. So looking at various methods of experiential learning. So this is a good opportunity to bring something that has been core for me, I think implicitly since I started teaching, explicitly in the last 10 years, mm. evidence-based management. Okay. So for me, where med is great is that if I want to know as a management educator, I, I'm curious of trying new methods. And I wonder if it works for this population. And I want to see, well, what, what evidence do we have with using teams in a certain assessment or with using certain exercises? The research that MED curates, and of course, there is also, look, it exists also in other divisions, not just... MLE is just more focused on education-related uh, research. I can go and I can see what has been done, and that will inform my teaching. The last part is there are two parts of the of the program in academy. So it starts on Friday, and it's a huge, huge for for those of you who don't know, it's over twenty thousand staff, academics, faculty, and and students, and some executives. About five percent are non-academics who come for about four and a half days and descend on a big city in North America. So it's not on Friday. Friday until Sunday are PDWs, professional development workshops. And then Monday, uh, Tuesday, and then sometimes, yeah, but Monday, Tuesday are the academic papers. And those two parts are quite different. Okay. The professional development workshop, indicative of how my focus changed as a young well, not young, but early, not young in age, but <laughs> early stage PhD or midway my PhD is with first time. I swallowed mostly the academic sessions. All the people I admired, all the writing. So, and that, that was going on for quite a few years uh, into my assistant professorship. And then I started going more and more to the PDWs and relatively less to the academic papers because the academic papers are as I could just grab a journal and read. I don't gain that much extra experience by listening. You do. It's a different experience, but it's not as big. The professional workshops were mostly interactive. I came, I learned skills. Even if there was something very dry like statistics, mm -hmm. it was hands-on and there was discussion. So the MED PDWs, when I was involved, that was one of my and we actually had the most PDWs per member than any other division. So that was a very big influence on the practice of education because there was the workshops where people would come and actually learn how to use, you know, in today's terms, how to use breakout rooms, right? Mm. Uh, or uh, how to teach multicultural teams, how to use exercises. I got some awesome uh, exercises from those PDWs as well. So the, the conversion there was very direct. Okay. Your 
movement is is towards practice rather than pure academic focus and i guess i mean one of the things that we've ha- we have in common over the last couple of years is is this link with the innovation academy i think you did the diploma the year before i did and that's where this podcast's come out of you know I've, uh, the fellowships that we we both landed this year um, with the innovation academy so is that part of this journey into practice the the, the innovation academy and and your creative problem solving module Talk to us about the last few couple of years then and, and where you're where you're at now as an educator. I think so. I think so. I so what's been happening is I have been defocusing and refocusing. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if it's I Well I, 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 can, think, I can I can work with that. Yeah, as a photographer yeah, work with that. You see, <laughs> the words came up and then I realized how they are connected to your <laughs> serious hobby. Uh earnest hobby. And yeah, it's maybe unconsciously I'm affected. Yeah, but when I but I, I use this term a lot when I talk about uh, our cognitive function with research and publications, the focus is is very much on that. When I defocused from that, when I moved a bit away, when I removed some of my energy away from the almost singular focus on, and it was you know. I, I was always into teaching, so it was never only research, but I removed some of my awareness, attention, I, I would say attention, from the publication research aspect. It started going into different directions and mostly into teaching. But yeah, this is why I then I started allowing myself to do things that wouldn't translate directly into career progress. Ah. That's interesting. Yeah, and it's uh, I'm having an interesting feeling saying that because what was responsible for the refocusing is a discomfort that the way I want to live life mm. had a certain gap from how I was in my work. Okay, so why yeah. why was your work not giving you what you needed or wanted then? What was the I was also. So there are two issues. One is my obsession with impact. And the other one has to do, I guess, with me following for many years certain East Asian philosophies and practices, mainly Buddhism and then some aspect of Hindu non-duality practices and Taoism. And I'm not a Taoist, so I wouldn't label what I have been taking in a lot of those wisdoms and interestingly for me they converge amazingly well the newest neurocognitive research as well yes but i won't go that's an area I like but i won't go into it yeah. <laughs> but there was a desire so so there was a combination of desire to have a positive impact mm. on the world outside me and i have on the one hand and, and then another aspect it was not to do things just to promote myself yeah okay so to have it's not that i became angelically altruistic but there was a certain need to change the blend to change the mix mm-hmm. and wonderfully academia allows many of us to do that and i'm hugely grateful that i can shift gears that i can change games and i had to be honest with myself that i did not feel that publishing article journals had the impact that I desired 
on the broader sphere of life. Okay. So if you look at the last 10 years, a lot of the things I've been doing, so a project I've been involved in the last couple of weeks on a different certain online community had to do with right livelihood. And I can tell you later beyond that or hear what it was about. But so I created a, a, a space, actually a Zoom meeting um, on Friday uh, that brought 24 people from different parts of the world who for an hour and a half talked about what is right livelihood for them um explain, in, explain what what does right for me for you what okay. to me what right livelihood means <laughs> yeah. so right livelihood the term is from a buddhist writing and ah, it's okay. one of the eight principles so there is and it's it's applicable for it's not you don't have to be a buddhist so it's applicable for anyone who wants to live a good life uh -huh. okay like a good life as in right life you would have some parallels in greek philosophy that may be closer to you in that stoicism most of all yeah so you have few principles right speech so you know don't curse don't gossip uh right action try not to kill people too often hmm. and, and and such and one of the eight elements on the path to self-development uh, or refinement is right livelihood. And you'll see different definitions, but for me, it means to A, be aware of what is the impact of what you do on the world. And secondly, for me, what it means to take responsibility. So the second thing is to observe, is there a contradiction between what I do at work for my livelihood, work, job, career, whatever. Uh, and it's also volunteer work, like it doesn't have to be paid, but for most part. So what do I do in my work life? How does it correspond to my core values and principles of living? And the third is the call for action is to take responsibility then if I identified a gap, not necessarily to eliminate it in a day, but to do something about it. About it, yeah. And I mean, so that's, what, that's what the plus one is for in, plus in, in the podcast, isn't it? it? Just making some change. One thing you, I see you, you're involved in is, you, is UCD volunteers overseas. Is yeah. It into this? That's perfect. Yeah, that's very nice. You're a great interviewer. That uh, fits in very well. And then actually it's been taking more time than I expected. Because <laughs> Those I, do don't they, these things? Uh, and that was perfect. I was looking for a couple of years to be on the board of an organization, both because I wanted that experience, was one few experience I haven't had being a, a, a trustee or a board member, but also to contribute from my skills and what I bought professionally and how I developed as a person to a cause that I believe in. And I really got to like the VO in the last just known them for about five six years from events they organized events i've never been with them overseas it's mostly for students but um i went to some of their events and i really liked what they did they mm -hmm. do and i offered a couple of times uh because i teach cross-cultural management so I offered a few times if we want i can come and you know uh, do some part of training for your volunteers overseas and then last year i was invited to well i had a conversation with the with the manager and she was curious she saw me in a few of the events few of the films and she was wondering if i would like to run for the board because there's a few new members elected every year 
And I said, yes, I would like to. I put myself forward. I was elected or, or voted in. And um, yeah, the element I didn't expect is to end up very soon in a committee that I, I, I don't have the skills fully for. And then gently but firmly being invited to be the chair of that committee. So it was kind of like, yeah, I, and I'm a bit of an avalanche. But I, it feels good to do. So it's fundraising and marketing. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm learning about fundraising now and trying to, to create strategy for the, to help the organization create strategy around it. But yeah, the UCDV or UCD volunteers overseas, these, it's, it's mostly students who go to disadvantaged, economically disadvantaged places. The, the two areas that mostly we work with are India and a couple of countries in Africa and contributing something. Yeah. And for me, that exactly that, you know, that combines the experiential learning aspect. Yes. That combines the international cultural aspect. Yes. And that is, I think, transformative. So I think I put developmental last night as my second word when you asked as an educator. And actually, I would put transformative is the one I was looking for. Right. So uh, trans. So not the, the developmental didn't quite sit with me, but it was late. So transformative is something that very much echoes with how I want to be. Yeah. As an educator. Yeah, uh, I think. You've you've got a few lines on your LinkedIn profile, and I, th I think it's from there. If it's not, it's from one of your talks. But you said, pushing my own limits and modelling this to students to encourage them to dare more and relax the fear of making an error or being embarrassed. And it seems like, you know, that, that like finance committee or that fundraising committee, rather, that's putting you in that space, isn't it? Um, so there may be stories to tell from that later. <laughs> that too, when you mentioned creative problem solving, that mm. was, I wrote those lines on my LinkedIn. I, I, I added them about a year ago, okay. it's fairly recent. And that was following my experiences with developing the creative problem solving. But, and it also connects to the Innovation Academy. So I went to Innovation Academy to have fun first. Okay. And to have, you know, serious fun, but earnest fun. Earnest <laughs> fun, yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it doesn't, I know, it doesn't flow, but like <laughs> to, to, to have serious fun, you can say, and to invest in something that will not translate that to something I did not need for my career. Mm. In order to formally advance, I need publications. Yes. Etc. Maybe I need some good evaluations. I need this. But I became much more open for self-development. And this is why I feel I can be honest with the students and say, look, the world is big one. Pursue your career, but make choices. I am hugely passionate about conveying to them the intoxicating sense of freedom that they can choose whether they want to be the next Bill Gates mm. or or at least go there, <laughs> or they want a very different mix. And both are fine. I'm not, you know, I'm very much staying away from infusing my teaching with my values. The only thing is critically evaluate and do what makes sense to you deeply. So, you know, I was partially practicing that and and... I think on the second day of the module, 
of the and that was the certificate, not the diploma. I think I kind of demonstrated this out of this pushing my limits. We had a project where I don't know if you had the same one where we had a saying mm -hmm. and we had to create a little video about it. Right. And people had to guess. So I ended up playing a cat and we filmed it in the science building outside. and that was that was about three, four years ago when students were roaming the corridors and I had a tail and ears and I was crawling on my force and uh that was curiosity killed the cat that was ours. We got that one yeah. and you know, I ended up like lying on my back dead. <laughs> and uh, it helps if you're a little bit extroverted. But with the creative problem solving, I really pushed my, it was the module that most pushed my own limits where I introduced things like collage making. Who the hell does collage making for credit yeah. in a top graduate business school? I mean, you know, and I knew that some of the students will be skeptical. It's an elective, you may know, but others, it's an elective module. So most students, I did not encounter before they came from five different programs mm. you know those who knew me from semester one um I, you know I, I think there was a professional trust there even if they were yes. skeptical but then more than half of the class I, I, i've never seen before and i felt very honest very authentic that i have been ex in experimental mode that I've been trying things that I earnestly did not know that may completely fall flat. And that's what I wanted to model. Okay. That's a funny place to be, isn't it? When you're a, when you're an educator with a class in front of you. And I don't think I, from, from talking to other educators in different, if you like, levels of education, whether that's primary or secondary or college or whatever, I think, all of us have this fear of falling over, of kind of failing in the classroom in mm -hmm. front of the class. Um, but that's how do we change our teaching if we don't do new things, if we don't so, try things out? So going back to where to one of the first things you said was about discomfort, right? Mm. So I don't enjoy stress. But I have been reformulating, and again, to a large part, thanks to Buddhist psychology, implementing it. It's nothing religious about it, but they are, they, they experimented in a different, not in a Western experimentation, but in a very personal way with those things over 2000 years ago, and they learned a lot. So, A, it's decoupling decoupling your teaching from your ego so being really serious about what you do but not about yourself so you yeah. fail hallelujah you failed it's all ego based it's like oh now i'm not that professional perfect professional professor or lecturer that i thought i was right so but i want to challenge myself in that way so it's not that i like stress it's not that i like failing i, I don't i would rather not but I don't, but I want to cultivate a state of mind where it doesn't stop me from doing something that I feel I should do. Just like the rain doesn't stop me from putting the gear on and going to the hills, you know? Hills, yeah. So, 
just so it's not you know just do whatever but be prepared know what you're doing and take risks and i think leaning into discomfort and one of my big became and it was interesting how students remember that one of my things that i've been kind of not motto but been saying in almost every module i teach is befriend uncertainty yeah befriend okay. uncertainty yeah I like and it. it's never been more useful or true than in the past year but that's something i, I started saying because i i said it spontaneously in one of the classes and then uh, when i was reading reflective verses something i've seen few students bring it up so it's like oh yes it's landed and that motivated me to then mention it really systematically more and more befriend uncertainty isn't it amazing when you ask students to do reflective journals and i do it in, in almost every class you know uh, the stuff that comes back to you isn't always what you think is going to come back to you they pick up on stuff that you didn't expect them to pick up on i love it it's it's that honestly I'll, I'll tell you frankly i the one part i really dislike about teaching is assessment yeah and i so i i don't hate it anymore because i actually have a lot of freedom of how to shape it and i i, I shape it to be meaningful learning but i still don't like it the one part without exception every year every course i taught from you know undergrad ones to executive development that I enjoy is the reflective part. And exactly because I can never be sure what will come up because it's a comb it is me, but in my class, but through each time a different set of eyes. Yes. Yes. And I I, I ask everybody in the in the questionnaire, and this is one of the few questions you did actually fill in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to to give me their their plus one okay so so what what can we offer people listening or or watching this this podcast if you like uh, f you know to take into their education or whatever now i'll i'll tell you what you wrote and then tell me whether you want to keep it or not or whether you want to give us something different. Not. <laughs> your your plus one was take seriously what you teach but not yourself observe when you react against something and bring non-judgmental awareness to it Okay. Do you want to yeah. leave that one, or do you want to give us something different? What's your What's well, your? <laughs> well, yeah. I've i so I've mentioned the first part a few minutes ago. Yeah. Um. I think take. I'll expand maybe, or you can mix and you can do you can edit it as you wish. <laughs> um, take nervousness and discomfort as information. Okay. Not as a signal, not as a stop sign. Mm. Take it as information. And if possible, lean into the discomfort. If it makes sense, and th this is using intuition in yes. that regard. So lean into discomfort, lean into the tingling, and see if you can find certain enjoyment in pushing your comfort zones yes but the information is so the information is you're doing something that you have not 
fully done before. Therefore, the nervousness about failing is higher than if you're doing something in routine. But the reward of mastering it is also higher than yes. doing something you've done before. And maybe you want to do it again. There's no reason to stop. We cannot, there is, each has its own, his own balance between same and new. Mm. But I would say do not, yeah, do not see comfort or discomfort or nervousness as a stop sign saying you shouldn't go there rather yeah. than pause, assess, take it as information that there's something new and see if you can push it a bit more. Yeah, fantastic. Well, that's lovely. That's, that's super. So, I mean, last question then for you. Because you, you you didn't give me any books or podcasts that people should go and read or whatever, but I've I've made a note. I'll send you. I'll send you a list. Couple of people stuff. So so, what's next for Jacob? Where where's your professional um, or personal or teaching journey taking you over the next year or so? You've got a fellowship, for instance. You. I know. Um, I know. Oh, like with your fellowship. Oh, <laughs> different, yeah. Different ideas come to mind. Different. Um, so I would like to get more into bringing, it's kind of like going back to, to where I started many years ago, the psychology. Hmm. And again, it's very much working with the evidence-based. I want to bring more elements to do with learning into my teaching. Um, so... Related to decision-making, but not in a kind of very structured, more reasoning. How, so one of the things I got interested recently in, how we can help people, students, to be more, to be critical thinkers. Okay. To use the reasoning, so to have a better balance between what they call intuition and logic. So in basically to have more effective reasoning and it, it goes beyond decision-making and mm. the various conspiracy theories, for example, is example of how sometimes very intelligent people put away all that intelligence when it comes to a certain area. So it has to do with becoming self-aware and reasoning. And I want to more broadly, I want to go into neurocognitive science and what's been happening there in the last 10 years. So I've been listening to several podcasts and, and talks that really fire me up in, in that area and to see how I can take that fairly um, basic science and implement it into teaching students how to be better learners. Wow. Well, if you can do that, I think you'll be able to uh, you'll be able to come back and tell us all about that. Maybe that would be <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, and you got to share that with with uh, with with. Yeah. Plus one, ask me in a year. Plus that, one year. That'd be an amazing plus one. Yeah, fantastic. Okay. Well, look, we've we've we're on half past one. We've we've run almost an hour. So it's I think we'll. Hard. We'll draw it to a close there, but thank you so much, Jacob, for taking the time today and, and sharing your journey and your thoughts on education and, and awareness and, and, and discomfort and uh, and earnestness and everything. So that's been that's been great. So thank you very much for uh, for coming on the podcast. 
thank you for showing me how it can be fun and rather than work. I think what we've done now is exactly what I'm actually talking about. Uh, it's been intensive. Like, uh, you know, we've been looking at each other for an hour. Yeah. And I feel I've invested energy, but it's, it's like, a, I, I guess it's a difference. It's been intensive play. Yes. Not work. Yeah. And going back to the learning, we actually learn a lot through play. We learn through work, but I think we neglect the playfulness too much uh, these days. Yeah. So what happened here was effortless dancing. Fantastic. <laughs> and we didn't even touch on dancing and improv and all the other stuff, but maybe another day. Yeah. Next year. <laughs> okay. Right. Well, okay. we'll, uh, we'll call it a day. Thanks, Jacob.